Well, shall we get started, Sam? Yes, we should. Welcome, listeners, to episode 11 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, one of the podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my friend Sam Heather Bell. Hi, Matt. <laughs> How you doing today, Sam? They get less and less natural when I say that for some reason on the podcast. Yeah, that's all right. I'm doing well. I'm doing great. We just had such a great conversation. Yes, it's a beautiful day here in New York. Mm-hmm. And we just had a long but wonderful conversation with Will Arbery, our guest today, who is the playwright behind the much-discussed, much-reviewed, spectacular new play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Much discussed, especially if you happen to be Catholic and very online. But yes. also, it's been reviewed in the New York Times. It's been reviewed by friend of the show, Vincent Cunningham in The New Yorker. It's getting a lot of press, very deservedly so. And importantly, it's getting positive reviews from across the political spectrum. Yes. Which is interesting, given what the play is about. Well, not to give too much away, but... It basically takes place at this Catholic college in Wyoming. In the play, it's called Transfiguration Catholic College, I believe. But it's based on the real-life Wyoming Catholic College, which is a mix of kind of great books, Mm -hmm. the Western canon, being educated into the Western canon, with sort of outward-bound Wyoming mountain outdoors stuff. Right. And Will's parents are professors at Wyoming Catholic College. And so the play draws a lot on Will's own background mm-hmm. and experiences and family life. And the play takes place in one evening when a bunch of alumni of this college go back for the inauguration of the new president. Uh, Gina is her name mm-hmm. in the play, but it's loosely based on uh, Will's mom. Right. And it's the conversation they have in the course of this evening, sitting around, drinking, smoking cigarettes, arguing, debating. Right. And one reason the play's gotten so much attention is because it's about conservative ideas. Mm-hmm. As one of the characters in the play says, it's a big conversation. They have a big conversation, which is what he wants. And what's so excellent about it is that you get to be a fly on the wall in this conversation that's happening, that's happening right now amongst young Catholic conservatives. It's one that you certainly wouldn't expect to hear on a stage uh, on 42nd Street in New York. And one of the reasons that it's getting positive reviews across the political spectrum is that right-wing conservatives and Catholics feel that their ideas are at least are being represented fairly in this play. If you're planning on seeing the play, which you should, it runs through November 17th right. at, Playwright, at Playwrights, Horizons. Playwrights Horizons here in New York. There are some spoilers in this episode because we just couldn't talk about the play in a substantive way without describing at least some of what happens, what some mm-hmm. of the characters say, some of the action in the play. So, spoiler alert, uh, but you should really go see it and then listen to this. But yeah, stop the podcast, go see the play if you can, and then come back and listen to it. That being said, if you haven't seen the play, I think that we do a good enough job of contextualizing every part of the conversation such that you don't need to see the play in in order to follow the conversation we have with Will. So, right, this is not exactly a normal episode or a typical episode. It's going to be very long. We had considered splitting it up into two episodes, one in front of the paywall and one bonus, but it just didn't really hold together that way. So we're releasing this one long episode. And for those of you who haven't seen the play or won't be able to see it, uh, we're sorry we're talking about this, this play the whole time, but hopefully you'll still get something out of the conversation anyway. Right. 
And this is a good opportunity to say thank you to our friends at Descent who are sponsoring the podcast now and who, for those of you who might be thinking about supporting us on Patreon, if you are a West Coast Straussian supporter, meaning $10 or more a month, you get a free digital subscription to Descent. Uh, so thank you again to Descent. Uh, support us on Patreon if you can. And also, as always, remember to rate and review us rate on iTunes. Rate and review. Yes. Our Spread podcast. the word. Share share the link to the new episode on Twitter. Yeah. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Talk us up. Right. One last thing. We will put a link to uh, a page where you can buy tickets to the play in the show notes. Yes. So if you're like, how do I even go see this? You'll be able to do it. Um, yes. That being said, here is our conversation with Will Arbery, the writer of Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Welcome, Will. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's so awesome to have you here. Obviously, we had you on because we... When did we see the play? Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah. So, the Know Your Enemy boys had a date night and uh, <laughs> saw the play, which was fantastic, uh, which we'd been looking forward to for a, for a number of weeks. We were excited to talk to you already, and then we saw the play, and we were like, oh my God, this is <laughs> going to be so great. Um, so... Anyway, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, well, that's exactly how I feel about your podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been listening to it. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe Matt, you reached out to me first, and then I started I did. listening to it, and I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> this is." Yeah, I did the thing. I you know I hate to do it, but I I DM'd Will on Twitter. DM yeah. slide. And, yeah, and I I didn't put it this way, but the effect was. We should really be friends. Yeah, <laughs> should, we have, or you know, we really should have a, co- a few conversations at least because we have some, you know, not identical backgrounds, but some some stories to share. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Uh, now, our listeners probably haven't seen the play. Some might have, but some haven't. So, before we get too far into this, maybe you could just set up the play a little bit. Totally. Yeah, the play takes place. Um on a very specific night, August 19th, 2017, um, in a small town in western Wyoming. Um, it's the night of the inauguration of Gina, Dr. Gina Presson, the first female president of a, of a small college out there, a small Catholic great books college that combines wilderness training with um, a classical western core curriculum. Um, in theology and um, a few of her students alumni who graduated seven years ago have returned to attend the inauguration maybe see the eclipse which is two days away the solar eclipse and the school is in the path of totality the path of totality totality, yes and um, yeah they've returned and um, basically they're out in the backyard of one of the alumni, Justin, who still lives in Wyoming and um, uh, works there as doing the horsemanship training. And uh, there's also the daughter of Gina, um, Emily, who's chronically ill 
and um, lives with her parents. And these two alumni, Kevin and Teresa, Teresa who lives in New York and writes for um, an unnamed website with sort of, um, you know, far-right leanings and <laughs> she's like uh, a big fan of steve bannon yeah she's a she's a bannonite i think vincent cunningham called her a, a bannonite rose grown from concrete which is like <laughs> beautiful and a little perverse yeah <laughs> totally um and then kevin, kevin vincent to be beautiful and a little perverse yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um and then kevin is uh coming from oklahoma where he writes for a catholic textbook company and goes to mass three mornings a week but is like totally confused and sort of addicted to the internet and masturbates too much and is looking for answers so they've all converged on this night and they're waiting for gina to show up the play takes place in real time and it's just um, arguments start spinning out and personal histories emerge and and yeah yeah <laughs> yeah we'll get we'll get so we'll get into it but um, I think another helpful question to frame it is why did you make, why did you write this play? Mm-hmm. Why did you write it now or when you wrote it? When did you write it and why? Yeah. Um, I'd actually had the idea for a play like this for a while. I went to an all boys Catholic school run by Hungarian monks in Irving, Texas uh, for eight years. And I, I had a lot of nights like this, like sort of around a fire pit, like, um, people just sort of trying to ideologically outdo each other, um, sort of competitive athletic conservatism or Catholicism, whatever the topic might be. And, um, a lot of times that would tip into competitive hate speech, to be honest, um, that schools sometimes seem to revolve around, uh, like the currency, the social currency of that school was how how racist misogynistic and homophobic you could be in the same breath um so so yeah my initial idea for a play was was actually uh about like maybe alums of a high school like this and it was going to be called douchebag and there was (laughs) (laughs) and there was going to be you know similar there was going to be like no liberal character so it was just going to be this like intense harsh immersion in this like horrible little world and then when the election happened i actually was like no actually the much more radical and productive thing to do is to come at this with more love and gentleness and to actually have the play maybe be female-led because i grew up in a household with a strong matriarch and seven sisters very catholic family i was the only boy my 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 experience of 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 this uh, you know, this faith and this um, political leaning was like female driven. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so I thought that that would actually be much more complicated. And then when I actually started writing the play was after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And I'm just feeling, you know, I'm in, I'm in the theater world, which tends to be very progressive. And I just felt like um, there was such a hunger for understanding amongst uh, that community. And so I felt simply a responsibility to um to provide like access to my very specific window into that world yeah yeah um now in the play you explain the title heroes of the fourth turning um the reference is to a a book called the fourth turning Mm -hmm. and could you just 
again, for those who haven't seen the play, what's that reference? Yeah. Um, so there was a book written in, I think, 1997 by historians named uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe. And basically the book argues that history goes in generational cycles, a cycle of four turnings, high awakening, unraveling, and crisis, and that each of these turnings are a couple of decades long. And that, like, you know, you could basically trace it, like, from going backwards from recent history. So, like, let's say we're right now we're in a period of crisis and maybe have been for about 10 years or so. Going backwards, unraveling would have been, like, the 80s and 90s into, like, 9-11. Some culture war stuff, some, like, people going off into their different camps and, like, sort of defining their tribes a little bit more um, concretely and, like, drawing lines in the sand. And then going backwards, awakening is a time of, like, yeah, spirituality and authenticity. Like, on the left, it would be, like, hippies and civil rights. On the right, right it would be, like, Vatican II and, like, the Solidarity Movement. Mm -hmm. And then before that is high, and that's a time of, like, institutional security and, like, financial flourishing. And that would be, like, the 50s. And then before that, you go to the crisis of World War II and the Great right. Depression leading right. into World War II. And, and this book was a favorite of Steve Bannon's. Yeah. Or is a favorite of Steve Bannon's. Yeah. yeah. And the, a crisis, it, it's it's cyclical, so a crisis begets a high, ultimately. Yeah. But the, it, it hap the crisis begets the high because there are heroes yes. who are involved in sort of in fighting a good fight during the crisis years. Yeah. So the heroes of... World War Two mm -hmm. were the great generation yeah. um, who fought in the war, defeated the Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. And the heroes now are people who were born, who basically like millennials, like people yeah. who were born. <laughs> the um, much maligned millennials are actually heroes. <laughs> right. And they are, and they are three of the four main characters in the play fall into the cat, fall into the, you know, by their birth by yeah. their birth dates yeah. fall into the category of heroes and then one the slightly older one is a, is a cusp hero yeah. <laughs> yeah. who's a nomad also who yeah. would be actually a nomad which is associated with people who were born or who were i guess socialized in, in during the unraveling and, yeah um is that yeah. Right? yeah exactly so they're more they're more alienated from institutions they're more like wanderers and they yeah it's like you know, slacker type yeah but of. they're like independent and sort of self-sufficient yeah. and like yes you know yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah so there are archetypes within each of the each of the turnings and the other two archetypes would be the prophet who's born during a high and comes into maturity during the awakening and sort of you know whatever they have Wisdom, basically. Yeah. During the crisis, they become sort of sage figures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, or the complacent. Enemy. Yeah, right. Compla or complacent, right. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the archetype born during a crisis is the artist, who, <laughs> who she admits, like, she doesn't really get why they matter. <laughs> it's great. So Ke Kevin, the character who's sort of like the holy fool character, and we can talk more about the characters and their sort of archetypes and stuff, but he, he goes, wait, what about the artists? And yeah. <laughs> Teresa goes, oh, well, they're just, they're born during a high. I don't really know. It's not important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's sort of the play, the setup for it. Yeah. It's what, uh, just over two hours long, and it is mostly conversation um, and, and these arguments, but it is really remarkable how well it holds your attention and still drives forward as a play, despite the fact that not much happens in one sense. Yeah. And just to be clear, like the fourth turning thing, you know, that's something that one character is obsessed with. 
Um, and it's not, you know, it's not like some argument that the play is espousing or endorsing. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, I wanted to say about the fact that it holds your attention in the playbill, there's a little um, interview with you or, or sort of something you've written for the playbill, and, and you say something like, ideas are more exciting than action movies right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it feels to me. Um, a, a sort of a sort of obsession with what each other um, believes, like, what does that person believe? You know, what, where do they, where do they stand ideologically? I mean, it's become like, we're all like detectives, uh, you know, or yeah. like spies into each other's inner workings. And, and it really seems to be getting people, you know, fired up and, and it has like real consequences in the world. So part of what the play is, is just a, like a, an exploration of what a belief even is and how it manifests itself in the world and how it affects the people around you and how it affects your own body and your own spirit. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And it, and it just felt very of the moment, uh, in a good way that it, it is capturing some of the ferment on the right that, you know, has been a constant topic of, of this podcast. And I just wondered in general, how you thought about that as you wrote it, because the same thing's happening in some ways on the left, right? The, you have young people embracing socialism and, you know, it feels like there's just a lot of ideological ferment in general in the United States. Yeah, yeah a cross-generational sort of confrontation. Yeah. You know, yeah, like uh, young people. I mean, the the centerpiece of the play is Teresa, who is was Dr. Gina's protege and sort of... Yeah, the Bannonite, yeah. Um, Teresa confronts her mentor about, you know, the new thinkers, basically, the new ideas, and gets like scolded and put in her place but not necessarily defeated in the debate it sort of becomes more personal and and it's left with this feeling of lingering yeah uncertainty like who who is right in this case and which which side is gonna prevail and it's and it's in and it's and it's two sides that are at least from the outside on the same side like they're yeah. well the liberals yeah. they would say oh these are these are all conservatives it's yeah. all the same yeah, and, and what makes this different? This moment now, the moment because again, uh, you mentioned the play is set right after Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, so, what makes this moment different now than say just the usual generational churn? Mm. You know, because you can even go back to Plato. Someone mentioned in the play, yeah. and and it always strikes me at the beginning of the Republic. You know, when they when they finally start having their real dialogue, and they talk about what virtue is, uh, what the good is. The first thing that happens is, if you remember, is they kick out the father, mm. <laughs> the father figure, right? Because they say, oh, you're old, you know, you're not sexed up anymore. It's easy for you to be virtuous. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the father gets the boot and then the real conversation happens. So the generational thing, you know, there's always a way in which you, you know, thumb, your, thumb your nose at your parents that, you know, the younger generation looks at an older generation and says, oh, you're out of touch. You, you don't get it. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think setting the play a week after the the riots in Charlottesville helps sort of plant that, you know, the, those higher stakes into the air. Because, you know, I think that that moment was, it was such a chilling moment for conservatives confronting their own identity in the country, I think, because a lot of people, like the older generation, who would never march in the streets the way that those alt-right and neo-Nazis did, 
still agreed that it was horrible that the statues mm-hmm. were being torn down. Right. Um, and, and just that question of how can we like adamantly believe that it's a, that it's a tragedy that this statue of Robert E. Lee is being torn down and, and not sort of instinctively feel some level of relief that, that someone is right. taking action against it. And yet to see, you know, the rhetoric that they were using, all of the symbology <laughs> in their in their protest and ultimately the the death of that woman like of course that's horrible heather higher yeah but you know still the statue yeah and in the confrontation there's a, a moment of confrontation over sort of those issues between gina the older the uh, new president of the college and teresa the bandanite younger generation mm-hmm. person and part of what teresa's trying to do is get Gina to admit that there's actually much more continuity than discontinuity between her conservatism, between Gina's conservatism and Teresa's conservatism. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that she does that is to say, you guys have always been using these code words like Mm -hmm. unions and and communism and blah, blah, blah. But it's always been about race, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. just come out and say it. It's race. And they're going to, they're going to, they, the liberals, the left, are going to, are going to say it's about race. And, you know, your response of being like, oh, no, no, it's about communism. Oh, no, no, it's about this and that, like, isn't adequate anymore. Right. And she she points to the fact that Gina, who's very proudly was a Goldwater girl, you know, she says she stood on the stage with Hillary Clinton, and she always knew Hillary Clinton didn't have any spine. Um, And she, but she held a a fundraiser or an event for uh, Pat Buchanan in the 90s. And, you know, all the the other characters in the play are like righteous. That's cool. Pat Buchanan, he's crazy, but he's awesome. <laughs> and, and, but what Teresa is saying is like, why did you do that? Why did you, why, why Pat Buchanan? And Gina won't say, I mean, the, what distinguished Pat Buchanan from his opponents in the nineties was his willingness to engage it, to be a sort of proto Trump figure mm-hmm. to talk about like race mm-hmm. and immigration and the, and ne- needing to defend, you know, white whiteness in effect. Mm-hmm. And, and Gina won't, won't cop to that right right yeah what was fun and really difficult about writing that exchange was that it's a kind of conversation that very rarely if ever happens uh on the right so it's at least in those terms and part of what i think is so disturbing to gina about the way that Teresa is talking is that she's using language and thought patterns that are sort of indistinguishable from from progressive yeah collectivists uh, yeah, left-wingers yeah and and seems to have integrated those thought patterns and that language into her I- into the way that she she actually thinks yeah. so even though she's like using using those arguments to like get to a place that's actually pretty um pretty close to like white nationalism she still is like, um, in Gina's eyes, almost indistinguishable from those people that she spent her career like defending, right, uh, right against. Yes, um, right. That yeah, even just Teresa like using the the word white, yeah, um, talking about whiteness, I think is like um, a huge taboo, at least in those older circles. Yeah. You know, it's also, like, to be honest, one of the things I've noticed in the response to this play is that, like, it's kind of a taboo <laughs> in 
in more progressive circles yeah. too. Like white people in general don't know how to talk about whiteness yeah. and what it means that they were born white in this country. And maybe there's more openness and willingness to, to do it, uh, you know, on the left. But, but, um, but it's, it's something that I've I found noticeably absent in most of the responses to the play from like white reviewers and yeah critics. they yeah. don't talk about race they don't talk about race and like the fact of the matter is is that this play is a race play it's yeah. just the, the the race is is white <laughs> yeah and we're not used to thinking about that as a race <laughs> yes that's so interesting yeah there's there's one thing i wanted to say that's sort of related to the sort of fourth turning stuff and the hero stuff and like watching this play I really like felt this affection and affinity towards these characters, even though they were often saying abhorrent things, like horrible things about transgender people, horrible things about LGBTQ identities poisoning, you know, mm-hmm. society, and and ultimately Teresa horrible things about about race mm-hmm. uh, and racism. But it was interesting to me that like I have always been a left winger and I went to college and had conversations like that the same kind of conversation where you're sitting with your friends and you're like who are we what do we what is our role we all want the good we want to build a good world and Mm -hmm. how do we do it and what are we going to do are we going to be like the heroes of this moment are we going to be the people who build the world the way we want it and the world that we want you know is uh was like socialism or you know some kind of equitable egalitarian society Mm -hmm. but there was it was interesting to me that I felt like watching the play I understand these characters. They're radicals. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand these conversations where you're trying to get the, to the root of things. And one, one question I was left with is like, what about, like, how does a liberal sort of, or a center right, center left person experience this play? Because they, these people weren't, they were not unfamiliar to me, even though right. I didn't go to a right wing Catholic college and I disagree with them about almost everything. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point because, it, you know, we're not conservatives, Sam and I, right? Um, but we we don't have mainstream politics exactly, right? You know, so there was a way in which, um, that's a, yeah, I did, I'm agreeing with you, Sam, that there was a way in which I still, I don't want to say admired some of the characters, but I there was something about them that I understood what they were getting at, yeah, and, and the search they were on, yes, right, yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've definitely found that, you know, this is, you know, in theater, we call it a walkout play. Like, this is a play that people walk out of. And, then, and um, that has been happening? That has been happening. Amazing. And really? It, yeah. And, you know, sometimes it has to do with, like, the loud noises <laughs> or the darkness. Like, they literally can't um, see. And I, I do feel a little bit more bad about those ones. But a lot of them are just people, um, I would say, middle-aged white liberals who just don't want to listen to this yeah and i and and my response to that is like that feels almost you know it it feels to me almost provincial you know in the, yeah and and you know we live in new york so that we don't have to listen to people like this and i think you know for me is almost indistinguishable from like my relatives in, in the south who might right. feel the same way you know like right. about the opposite side like yeah um, or, you know, why isn't there a liberal character up there telling them what's what's wrong about, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're used to a certain kind of play where, like, you know, where's the outsider son who comes home and, like, yes. brings his girlfriend right. and, like, and they get into they a big an fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, what was the, why, why the decision not to include a character like that for you? I, I think that it's just infinitely more 
productive to hear these arguments on their own terms and um, from within a, a relatively like safe space yes. for them. Yeah. Um, because how they actually would talk about it with themselves. Yeah, how they actually would talk about it. And the disagreements and the nuances amongst themselves, I think is, you know, that's a lot of the, it's for the same reason that I really appreciate this podcast is that y'all really get into the details. Um, I think the, 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 you know, when, when there is like a liberal present amongst super conservative people, they become, you know, they, they shut up a little bit or become a little bit more, yeah, they self-censor, they become more diplomatic because, they know how that argument goes. Like, they know how it always ends. You know, they, like, it. it's, you know, the, the don't talk about politics at Thanksgiving kind of thing. Well, to follow up from Sam's question, this might be a distinction between right and left. Even, Sam, when you were describing the conversations you'd have at Brown, you used the phrase, like, what kind of world we want to build. And I do think a lot of conversations on the left are like that, looking outward, what world do we want to build? And certainly that's present in the play, especially with the character of of Teresa. Um, But the character of Kevin, for example. um, The searcher. The searcher. I do feel like he was very representative of a strain on the right of asking not just what kind of political project he's interested in, or his, he and his friends are interested in, but what it means for him to live a good life. Yeah. And I don't want, again, I don't want to That's say... That's very common on the left, too. <laughs> it is. It Kevin is. was a very recognizable character. Yes. Yeah. But it takes on a certain language, and, yeah. and it's in a certain context on the right, where it often is religious, and you're saying, how can I live a virtuous life now, in modern conditions? I have these ancient beliefs, and I want to follow like his whole thing about you know so he's clearly like looking at too much porn online and masturbating too much and that is a thing catholics in their 20s and 30s worry about yeah i'm sure sometimes he like tries to do it without looking at porn because that feels more virtuous than right (laughs) right but you start getting to these gradations of yeah exactly yeah (laughs) how bad is this versus how bad is that right and i and i think too that's a very recognizable type at these conservative Christian colleges. And the search for what it means to live a good life, it, mm-hmm. again, it's, it's in that context of holding these religious beliefs. And, and the, the phrase heroes, is it like heroes of the fourth turning? Yeah. It's not just political heroes, people who will take action in some way, but a certain moral hero- heroism. Mm-hmm. Um, the character of Gina... Um, when she says she had eight C-sections, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Is it eight? Eight. Or is it, you know, and she still, does she say she doesn't use birth control? Or no, but it's implied. It's implied, yeah. Yeah. right? Because it would be the natural thing to do if you've had difficult pregnancies. Right. And so living up to those Catholic ideals in a setting in which in a historical moment in which mm-hmm. all the forces are kind of yeah. mitigating against not masturbating to right. online pornography, not using birth control, um, the whole delaying of marriage and, and settling down and having a family. Yeah. Those anxieties and pressures, I think, are what I was getting at when I said how the right might be different than the left. And mm-hmm. of course, there are plenty of people on the left, young socialists, who want to get married and have families too and are not sure what their own personal lives mean. Yeah. But that idea of kind of an individual personal heroism that is shot through with the Catholicism. Yeah. That was something I really identified with. You know, Kevin is a good 
um, uh, example of of a strain that I think is running through the entire play. I think almost every single debate that happens in the play, um, and because it's a deeply Catholic world, I think, revolves in some way around the question of motherhood, fatherhood, and building a family. And it's never explicitly stated, but it doesn't need to be because this is a Catholic world mm-hmm. where so much of exactly what you're talking about, that that personal heroism, you know, you can accomplish that by just committing yourself to one person, you know, ideally saving yourself for marriage with that person, and then staying open to the 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 gift of childbirth and mm-hmm. and children and and staying open to as many as God wants to give you. I think that is like a pressure that every single character in that play is mm-hmm. feeling. Right. Um, and something that Gina, you know, stands for. You know, she she is someone who potentially put her o- own personal desires and and career ambitions to the side at least a little bit to to have eight children and kevin i think you know he's he's obsessed with um two things either becoming a priest or getting a girlfriend um you know which is so you know the number the number of people even among conservative catholics here in new york who i'm friends with yeah you know that is such a archetype (laughs) yeah 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 and i think you know when it comes to like becoming a priest it's like ugh. Should I? Do I have to? Like, is that what? Is mm-hmm. that who I am? Is that where this is all going? Like, oh, I would be, you know, it would be great, you know, like people would think I was a good person, but like, oh, I don't want to. And then the getting of the girlfriend, he just can't. Like, he can't get a girlfriend. No one wants to date him. Um, he's too much. He's too weak. Whatever it is, like, it's just not working out for him. Um, I think he is feeling that that family call most strongly but i think it's also really um present in in the character of Teresa, who you know is getting married soon but admits towards the end of the play that she's afraid her wedding won't be beautiful she's afraid that she doesn't really know how to love at all um she admits to gina that she fears motherhood you know justin it's it's said at one point that he has an ex-wife um, that he like lived this other life before converting and and coming back to school. Justin um, is sort of the nomad character, and he's also sort of like he he represents in terms of like the ideas, us like an advocate of like the Benedict option of yeah. like of like leaving society. We're not going to be able to fix this fix this secular thing. Let's let's leave. Let's go find our acre yeah. to live on, and um, let let the hedonists eat themselves eat each other alive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just, just for context. He, he yeah. names, name checks the Benedict option yes. in the play. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, you know, on this night in his backyard, there are two women who very clearly, like one of whom he has a history with, Teresa, the other of whom um, there's a real charge in the air between him and Emily. Uh, Emily's sick. He t- helps take care of her. Um, you know, she... I think pretty clearly has a crush on him. They have real yeah. chemistry. Um, they're both sort of like archetyp- archetypally perfect, you know, for, for Catholicism. Like, yeah. you know, he's the strong, silent provider, gentle, but, but you know, he was in the Marines. He can kill if he has to. He starts the play by killing a deer. Um, but he's, he's thoughtful and, um, 
uh, very intelligent, but is very good at listening. Like he's he's the perfect man. Right. <laughs> like Emily is, you know, she's kind and she's has a full faith and she's she's got a sort of saintly energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and both of those things are turned on their head a little bit by by the end of the play. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I think that thing that you pointed out of of building the family, you know, it traces through. You know, Kevin asked a question early on in the play, like, "Why do we have to love the Virgin Mary? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what does she have to do with our salvation?" And and Teresa gets into that with him and makes it political. And and the way she pivots away from that is like ultimately what happens later when she's talking about very political things and gets pivoted back into um, the family by Gina. Um, uh, you know, the abortion debate that Teresa has with Emily, like even the question of whiteness and like you're, you know, Teresa makes this like bold, bold statement to Gina. Like you're not, your single issue isn't actually being pro-life. It's white Western civilization, which only survives by being pro-life. And Gina, that's when she really snaps into, <laughs> you know, we've got to shut that down because it's the, it's the sanctity of the family, which is at the center of, of the whole, um, the whole institution. Yeah. Well, maybe another way of reformulating my question, uh, and, and this comes to me because you mentioned the debate about the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. or why should I love the Virgin Mary? There's some really interesting which, stuff there. Which, it was so incredibly well-written, the whole scandal of the particularity. And you named Czech Walter um, Brueggemann, yeah. And that idea, that was such a well-written passage in the play, I thought. This is Teresa responding to Kevin when he says, why should we care about the Virgin Mary? It was a brilliant little soliloquy on her part about particularity. And I think this is what I was getting at in a way with my previous question was, I think a lot of times on the left, it's a universal philosophy, right? Right. If you're gay, if you're transgender, no matter your race, no matter where you're from, we want you to have the rudiments of a decent life. Mm -hmm. And the right is all about the particularity in a way. Like, you know... um, there are better and worse ways to live your life, right. and and you should live it this way. And yeah. even if it doesn't make sense to everyone, even if it is a scandal to the people in the world, in yeah. the secular world, like we are following the narrow path, yeah. and and that's um, that's what I think gave the the qualities of some of these deliberations the the precise quality they, yeah. they had. And I think and I think that language is is sort of. Uh, confusing to a lot of people on the left who um, might not be familiar, you know, maybe not like totally immersed in, in that world from a young age, like I was, but like, because they would be like, well, if, if you're all about the particular, then why can't, um, you know, a transgender person be very particular in there? You know, why can't, why, what, what does that even mean? Like we're Mm -hmm. all, that, that is what, being you know that is what we believe on the left is that everyone is particular and we should look out for each other Mm -hmm. and and build a community where everyone is welcome but it's actually you know as we often find with the language on the right like it's actually (laughs) yeah it's it's arguing for something again just rooted in in you know the the always in the the natural good or the highest good which is ultimately like building a family mm-hmm. um uh but then in, like what that particular family looks like and believes is also important to them yeah. <laughs> and the social and political I, order needs to be geared toward that particular it. view of yeah. 
of of the good life, yeah. the, the highest good of of certain ways of of forming families and yeah. raising children are better than others. Yeah, I was very interested in that moment with Teresa's speech about the scandal of the particular. And what she's saying about Virgin Mary, just for context, is that he she's accusing Kevin of being of what he doesn't what he doesn't like or understand about the Virgin Mary is that she's too particular. She's too she's just a regular woman. Why did God choose this this regular woman? to you know bear his son and 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 what kevin feels is what she's saying kevin feels is that 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 she that he can't appreciate the fact that we have to work out our salvation with with others yeah. with people with uh, um with particular people not always divine people not always saints and but there's something else that's really interesting that's going on there politically is that she's also sort of making uh, it's a def- she's it's a defense of Trump too yes, yes. because she's saying she's saying well yes we look at Trump and Kevin has Kevin says I'm disgusted by Trump different characters are disgusted by Trump but she says but we, that's also because of the scandal of the particular you can't stand that this very particular man this fallen man this man yeah. who's who's so imperfect can be um, sort of a vessel for our yeah. goals that's what you hate about him right um, you're disgusted by him and she's saying you know but but in fact like. The grace and 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 the grotesque yes. are are contiguous all the time, yes. and you have to appreciate that. And I mean, so that's all very interesting. But I think also Kevin's response is fabulous because he says, "If you're so into the particular, why won't you talk to me about my particular feelings?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he says this. There's this moment early on in the play where he says, "All I want to do is um, be really, really human with my friends." Yeah. I want to just, I want to, can't, can't you just like stop working, stop being serious and just be really, really human with your friends? And when that happened, I nudged my girlfriend um, because that's something I would say for sure. <laughs> like, what do I want to do tonight? I just want to be really, really human with my friends. <laughs> and he's right too. He's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's beautiful. It, the writing is incredible, oh, and I'm, feel, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm giving too much of the play away. Everyone, should, we're going to obviously say this in the introduction, but everyone has to go see this play. Let's let's talk about Emily some. We haven't mm-hmm. talked about her as much. Yeah, and there, you're right. There's no liberal character that you know is the kind of straight man for, for the for the mostly liberal New York audience watching yeah. it. Um, but she does provide some of the the grist for maybe tension or she, she does introduce a slightly different perspective in the sense of uh, she's very compassionate. She's seen a lot of human suffering in the women she works with at a kind of counseling clinic, right? For pregnant crisis, pregnancy, crisis, pregnancy center, women who might be considering Uh, an abortion, a pro-life, a pro-life. Yes. Yeah. Pregnancy. center, And, and she does bring a note of compassion and kind of empathy into the play. And is the one that will kind of say, well, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, so maybe talk about her some. Yeah, I think Emily is, um, you know, I I feel totally comfortable saying that if there is like an actual hero of the play, it's it's probably closest to Emily in my in my mind. You know, other people might disagree, and that's totally fine. Um, but um, one of the things I write about more often than not, you know, I've just noticed this pattern with my other plays, with my film and TV stuff too, is like, I write about women who are trapped in and upholding, 
an institution that is designed to limit their autonomy. <laughs> and, um, you know, for me, Emily is the perfect example of that. I mean, she, she loves her faith like deeply and, um, and, you know, she, she doesn't feel threatened, um, in her faith when she talks to someone who a doesn't have the same faith or B is doing something that would seem to be diametrically opposed to her faith. Working at Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Working at Planned Parenthood. She, she doesn't, um, you know, she doesn't get defensive. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't see that as some sort of indication of the, the, damnation of that person's soul um and she's the daughter of gina she's the the, daughter of college president i don't know if we've said that yet yeah and she Um, didn't go to the school um right she didn't go to this the you know transfiguration college of wyoming where where all of them went um Mm -hmm. so yeah she um and we mentioned this before but she has like some kind of disease like Lyme yeah. disease or yeah. something that she's in that pain racks her she, body with yeah. pain she can't walk all the time she mentions her, her joints swelling up yeah she's she, a walker or a cane she, or she something cane, on stage yeah. yeah so she's and it, and she says it's you know it's been seven years of this and it it goes you know sometimes she gets better and then it gets worse and she's just in pain all the time but tonight's the first night she's been out of bed in months yeah and um so she's she's approaching this night with a lot of a lot of hope and a lot of courage Mm -hmm. and uh yeah and she gets into a debate um with teresa about her friend olivia who works at at planned parenthood and teresa's argument is basically you know that person (laughs) that person cannot be a good person they're either um willfully ignorant or knowingly evil and both are evil um and emily really holds her own against that claim yeah um, which but, is which is pretty remarkable considering how much pain she's in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. But yeah. she does offer, um, you know, at one point, I think Teresa, you can correct me who brings it up, but the analogy of abortion to the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. For a long time, em, like for for a few lines, Emily resists the categorization of you know abortion in America as being equivalent to the Holocaust, and then Teresa just sort of grills her on it. So then Emily says, "Okay, well, let's say that that's true." let's say the babies are the Holocaust victims. What does that make the mothers? And, and Teresa starts to answer and Emily's basically just like, don't say they're the Nazis. Just don't say that. Um, yeah, which, (laughs) which I think like, um, and then, and then Teresa like pivots away from Mm -hmm. the analogy altogether. Yeah. Um, and goes into a different place, you know, goes into like empathy and Hannah Arendt and all this stuff. But like, um, I think that that what it shows in that moment is that Emily has seen farther into it because of her real world experience. She's seen farther into um, the impossibility of it um, than Teresa and, has. And that the the reference to Hannah Arendt that empathy in a way holds your own clear thinking hostage. Yeah, mm-hmm. that it, that empathy is is something that is. Well, she's very dubious about it, yeah. to say the least. Uh, and I thought that was so fascinating, too, because I, I do think 
that is a very prominent strain on the right. That if yeah. you if you concede, she says the liberals are like injecting empathy into their veins, and she she mimes like like a heroin needle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if but if you if you start reacting to the suffering and struggles of others, even if they're very different from you, even if they're people you disagree with strongly, it does kind of break down the bounds, the, of the, the ideological certainty. And yeah. it injects complexity into the kind of black and white of ideology. Yeah. And I thought that was one of the most interesting moments of the play. And I don't know if you want to talk about that more, but, it, but you know, there are all these, you know, they say, oh, the best way to change someone's mind about, say, gay marriage is for that person to meet a gay person. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Have a gay I, child. Have a gay ch- <laughs> child. And, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of examples. And, yeah. and, I, and I do think that's something where the right... They don't quite know how to handle it because they, you know, they're making arguments at a fairly abstract level about what policy should be, about what's right. But when you start getting down to the particularity of people's lives and their suffering and struggles, yeah. you know, that it, it, it forces you to at least, if not rethink your entire view of things, again, it just it starts breaking down the certainty. And I thought yeah. that was just, a, a, again, a remarkable moment in the play. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, one of the major themes of the play is whether to be open to the world or closed off to it. And, you know, mm-hmm. Justin says, um, when Kevin's considering moving to New York, he's like, you know, saying that cities are hubs of LGBT activity and, you know, exposure makes you porous to infection. And <laughs> right. I think like, I think that that's um, absolutely the way that, that some people think about it. Not everyone, obviously, like it's, uh, you know, part of the mission of the play is to explode the idea of a conservative monolith. But, mm-hmm. um, but there is a real strain of, 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 you know, people who, you know, cut off, um, you know, gay relatives from seeing their children, you know, yeah. seeing their children is like something yeah. that I've seen happen in, in, in <laughs> the real world. And, yeah. you know, a, you know, a friend of mine who's, transgender and hasn't spoken to their parents in a year you know um it's it's a it's it's real Um, it seems kind of unchristian (laughs) yeah i'm wincing over here (laughs) as the jew in the room i'm like oh maybe no totally i mean look i agree with you um i uh, if if you know there, there's been a lot of like prodding at my actual like personal beliefs and my you know actual spiritual life and i've been resistant to like saying i will arbery believe this and this and this yeah. and i go and I, I practice this you yeah. know because i want people to be able to um encounter the play on its own terms yes. without looking to my own biography for answers that mm-hmm. they should find for themselves but um but I, I think it's undeniable just based on the way that I live my life that I am very much on the side of openness. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And that that I do I do agree that it, that it's more Christian. And it's it's worth noting too. I I wasn't trying to be too critical of all conservatives by my last comment because Emily herself is a character who clearly has these deep a, a very deep faith and has strong been, convictions right. of some kind and manages. Yeah. to relate to people very different from her in a way that, you know, acknowledges the complexity of their situations. And to, to borrow a line from Pope Francis, kind of accompanies them, walks with them, yes. even if there are differences. I wanted to say that, like, and this maybe opens us up to an, another conversation we, we, we will, may, could or could not have, but I was reading some of the reviews of the play, especially by right-wing Catholics and right-wing observers, 
And obviously, Rod Dreher was a big fan of the of the play. The writer, the person who who wrote about the Benedict Option, uh, he hasn't seen it. Oh, he and just I, read it. Yeah, he's yeah. read it, and I know he wishes he could see it. And I do. I am very curious to know if he would feel differently if he saw. Well, it. I, you know, I yeah. I mean, inevitably. I mean, my parents read it before they saw yeah. it, and when they actually saw it, it was just a, a much yes, a much more. Uh, sort of shell-shocking experience. It is. Well, I wanted to say that one of the stupidest things that has been written about the play, I think, was something that he said where Teresa has given her you know, take takedown of empathy towards Emily, where she says you're you're poisoned by empathy and, um, you know, it's it's making you weak and unable to, like, stand by the strength of your convictions. Um, And he says, in response to Teresa, Dreher writes, Amen, sister. (laughs) Emily is swamped with her own suffering, so much so that her empathy clouds her ability to think clearly. And it's like, if you took that away from that interaction, (laughs) like, just how wrong? I mean, not that, like, you know, there's a right and wrong way to read a text, you know, of course, but... But the way I experienced it was was that with that Teresa was a caricature that she was saying that and and that and that Emily, as you say, is a hero in the play, and her pain and her body is is such an important part of that. Yeah, her pain isn't something that clouds her or uh, undermines her faith or undermines her conviction. You know, like she yeah. says, she says she quotes Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, you know, um, what what is it? Give me the courage to stand the pain to get the grace. Yeah, yeah. And for for Dreher to take away, and we don't have to just, this isn't about shitting on Rod Dreher, but I found this really interesting. For him to see her pain as something, as the thing that, that clouds, her, clouds her judgment or clouds her conviction or makes her a worse Christian is just sick to me. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to agree with that. <laughs> there are definitely some, some things that I want to engage with Rod specifically on, and that's... Um, and that's very much one of them. I mean, I, I like had this amazing experience recently where um, Zadie Smith emailed me. Oh my god! About the play, and she said this amazing thing, uh, where she was like, um, "Teresa is like the finest dramatization I've seen of what happens when a person becomes indistinguishable from an algorithm." Cool. And um, maybe our work as artists today is to is to help people not be algorithms. Yeah. Um, and I think that is what's happening. And I just thought that was brilliant. I think that's an, a large part what is happening with Teresa. She has herself um, submitted to the heroin drip of like the, the, the party line, basically. The certainty. And the certainty. And like, if this, then none of that. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. scary. Yeah. Who else and have you gotten emails from? just kidding just kidding Uh, but that's i mean that's partly what makes her such an interesting character is because that algorithmic quality of of buying into the party line and kind of having all the answers right there whether it's theological i mean that her her riff on the scandal of the particular was right there Mm -hmm. you know and her political answers are kind of right there yeah even if that maybe breaks down a little bit down the line yeah um but it's clearly as you pointed out earlier, she's, she has her own personal struggles. She fears motherhood. You know, she's uncertain about her upcoming marriage. And it felt to me like mm-hmm. her bravado and brashness and certainty was clearly covering up a deeper set uncertainty mm-hmm. or 
questions she had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and in a way, this, you know, with Rod, I mean, Rod, Rod and I have a little bit of a history, <laughs> but it was, it was so interesting that comment he made about her because I feel like the same thing is going on with Rod. He, he has this kind of strong line he puts forward, you know, on his blog and in his writing, but, you know, that might be rooted He's in... He's in so danger his, of becoming an algorithm himself. <laughs> you perhaps. know, or his, his own anxieties or whatever. You know, every once in a while he'll have these posts that just are so revealing of his inner psyche. Yeah. Right? That it's like clearly... Right. You, that, you know... There's that, two... There's two... Every Rod uh, blog has like two dimensions. And and you read them at the same time, and it's, it's what makes them so fascinating. Um, we should like we'll maybe caveat at some point that like Matt and I are having <laughs> that you're you're not Will's not endorsing everything that we say on this, and um, you know, well I I'm in this interesting position where I've uh, you know I've taken it I I don't know I've I've decided that what I want to do is try to engage okay one thing one thing that i think is like runs through the play is sort of like the these questions about um words ideas and feelings or weird words ideas and emotions Mm -hmm. and like we sort of started to get at this when we talk about how maybe Teresa she uses the strength of her arguments to sort of not feel to avoid and the characters in the play especially explicitly Teresa and Gina, they both place this really high premium on reason and, and language and, and being able to think clearly. You know, um, clear thinking is the, the, the scarcest resource or whatever um, that in America. Well, she's, today. Yeah, sanity. Sanity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. right, right. And, um, but, 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 but that's also sort of problematized by other characters and by the play. Like, like, what can re- reason can lead us to this sort of algorithmic thinking that Teresa has, and it can close us off to the kind of o- open wound kind of emotional acuity that Emily has. And and and, and Emily, I found there's a couple moments where she. Well, I'll just read a. Can I? I'll yeah. just read a passage. Emily said, says, I'm just so tired of talking. There's nothing to figure out. We just eat each other up and die and one by one. And in heaven, it's going to be so different. All the words and meaning will fade into no words and no meaning. Just God everywhere through us all the time. And it'll hurt so bad. And I feel like there's, yeah, a response to this sort of, well, we're going to be able to figure this all out if we just talk about it enough there. Um, which I found really compelling. And then the last thing is um, I love her and Justin's little call and response. Just a doopy-doo. Yeah. Doopy-doo. Just and, a simple hoopy-hoo. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, w- and what I felt about that in this context of this thing I'm talking about is that in some ways there's so much love, emotion, care, humor, sense of play that's communicated, like all sort of like divine qualities to me in these meaningless words mm. and when, when the play is so overabundant with, yeah. with, with, with words that are specific and, and have so much meaning, have yes. so much specific meaning, it's, it's the contrast with these words that mean nothing, but, but mean everything too, right. is really incredible to me. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I think that there was a concern, um, you know, with my parents when, when they saw the play, like 
a concern about, you know, is the ending nihilistic? Is it a mm. call for nihilism? And I'm, and I'm glad you read that quote because if, if you read it closely, that's actually not what's happening. She's saying no words and no meaning, just God just everywhere God. through us all the time. Um, which is, you know, it's not saying that, um, that it's, 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 it's saying that there's no meaning attached to language anymore. Yeah. That language is actually the thing that's, um, that's wrong with this picture. Amazing um, thing to say in such a voracious play. <laughs> I mean, I, I love mean, language, but I'm also, you know, my, you know, part of the reason Loquacious, why. Loquacious, I, I meant. Yeah. <laughs> um, but voracious too. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. <laughs> um, part of like why I'm a writer is, is because I have like a love hate relationship with language. Hmm. You know, it's yeah, like always, all it's always disappointing me and hurting me. And uh-huh. <laughs> you know, um, and I think, you know, you know, Emily is, 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 you know, the, the, the context in which she's saying what she's saying is also super specific, Yes, but it does feel like something that, resonates um with like her experience of the play we've just watched yeah like there like people just talked for so long and what did it all add up to pain 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 Pain. Pain is the thing um (laughs) yeah yeah and they talked and they talked and the the, but the feelings that they have towards each other that like desire that moves throughout the play unspoken moves between the characters unspoken um it has so little to do with the words I mean, the words are sometimes a way of expressing or hiding the desire. Um, but um, I also think desire is a really interesting yeah. thing in this play. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, as someone watching the play as a, as a Catholic, a yeah. bad Catholic, but a more or less practicing one, you know, it was, Emily was interesting too, because there is a sense in which ideas have to give way to something else yes. in the Christian faith. I mean, you know... We worship Jesus, a particular human being, right? And it's an encounter with with him rather than simply a set of a theological system that you adopt. I mean, the theological system might be there, uh, of course, but there's. I thought it got at something interesting there, and it said something about the texture of her faith in yeah. a way. And this might be we didn't we haven't gotten too deep into your background. Um, but one question I had, because this is something we've talked about on the podcast, was I grew up a conservative too, but in a very different context. And we've used Pat Buchanan's line actually on the show to call it a conservatism of the heart, you know, like an instinctive conservatism, patriotism. Um, you know, my Christian faith I grew up with was was very conservative. Um, what was it like growing up in a household of conservative intellectuals? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the example that I can give of what that was like was just what it was like to be around that dinner table. And, you know, I'm the second to youngest. Um, I'm, the, I'm the only boy, um, aside from my dad. Um, um, I'm seated right next to my father. <laughs> my mom's on the other side of the table. Every, all these women are around me. And for me, you know, my mom was very clear about she only wanted one conversation to be happening at the table at all times. So she didn't like breakaway conversations. It was a, it was almost a symposium, a collective, uh, or, you know, like we, we gathered at the table and then we discussed as a family. 
often that conversation was between my mother and my father <laughs> and we were sort of witnesses to it. And my dad is more of a poet. He's more, he's a literature professor. Um, my mom is a political scientist, political philosopher. Um, they both are versed in each other's fields. Um, but that was sort of the place in, in the, the, the air in front of me in the table was the meeting of poetry and politics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the fissures between them. And um, my mom used the, that word when she saw the play. She was like, it's about the fissures. And I thought that was beautiful. And um, I think, um, you know, one of the things that interests me is finding the the, the poetry in, in my mother's views mm. and the political implications of my father's, you know, more poetic outlook, um, seeing how those things live inside the huh. two of them, um, seeing the ways they rippled out into their eight children. Um, you know, but I think that word fissures is, is just the perfect summation of like what I'm trying to do with this play is like mm. exist in the fissures. And some of those fissures are very thin and some of them are cavernous, but you know, I will also say from a personal level, like, uh, my experience of it was I was really resistant to all of it for a long time. I thought it was boring. I thought huh. the ways that they talked were boring. I never understood what they were talking about. So I was I was resistant to politics. I was resistant to intellectualism. And my, my interest skewed more artistic, you know, instinctual, um, uh, visual. You know, I was obsessed with film. Uh, I was acting. I was, uh, you know, I was writing poetry. <laughs> But um, it like doing this play was a huge moment in my life of coming back, circling back around to um, to something that was just like the air we breathed, and 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 some of it was really challenging, and some of it like it was amazing how everything was clicking into place, like these names that were thrown around at the table, you know, a lot of names that didn't even make it in there, like Leo Strauss and like people like this, you know, like they, they like going, circling back and finding out what those, what those people wrote about and what they actually thought um, has been like, there's some been something like almost like pleasurable about it to me, like, uh, like on an aesthetic level that Mm. like some things can click back in that way. Like just this, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like the sound of these names um mm-hmm. hearing them spoken out loud in my chosen medium is like pleasurable to me even though um <laughs> even though um you know what those names stand for is complicated and yeah mm-hmm. um i don't know it's it's i will say that like this play has caught me at a moment where like I am asking myself that very thing that you just asked me, like, what was that like? And like, this play is my way of starting to poke at that question. Mm. And that's partly what made it, I think the conservatives who have watched it and liked it mm-hmm. and felt themselves portrayed in a way that is more or less accurate or is the ring of truth about it. It, because it, there are the, like the references to Flannery O'Connor and that is how, these conversations would go. That's real. That's not like you importing some reference to signal to someone else. That's, you know, it felt very true to life. The references, the kind of casual drop, like, I think, is she actually called Flannery O'Connor or is Flannery she just Flannery O? Just Flannery O. That's, yeah. that's real, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. 
and 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 that's really what I wanted to capture was just the feeling of sitting there at that dinner table or in those backyards and just absorbing it and listening um, and trying to figure out where I felt inside of that but but oftentimes just like not even doing that and listening I mean I that's the reason I'm a playwright and the reason I'm an artist rather than like a pundit or a you know a politician or something like that is podcaster is, a podcaster <laughs> yeah um, is is because I you know I exist in the fissures in the fissures yeah. yeah and my parents refer to me sometimes as like a Hermes like figure you know like mm. sort of a trickster you can't quite pin down mm-hmm. but like also you know you know a little sneaky sometimes a little mm-hmm mischievous but like (laughs) also like the messenger and also like the person who who walks between the land of the living and the land of the dead you know Uh like the 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 guide between Mm -hmm. the underworld and Hmm. and the real world and and that feels very right to me is like i think so much of what people are responding to in this play is that it's like it's linking um a very specific topical strain of, you know, modern conservatism mm-hmm. with like a primal yeah. uh, underworld, like, and we haven't really talked about it much, like the, the sort of feeling of, of dread that mm. almost defy, it defies reason and it defies, and, and there are theatrical elements that are built in that are sort of meant to bridge. There are so many bridges in this yeah. play and that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. It's palpable. Um, I mean, you do i felt a sense of dread in Mm -hmm. in the play as Mm -hmm. it approached its sort of apotheosis Mm -hmm. um yeah Uh, the the thing about bridges and and fissures and moving between these different worlds this is something i said when we were off the air but i think it's true and like and and it's about it's also why like it's so admirable to use kind of a stupid word that you're approaching that your project is about staying in the fissure or moving back and forth and, and being open, um, having the conversation with Rod, um, engaging. Um, and it's, it, it, I sort of thought of this analog where on the, on the, on the right, you know, Justin says like, don't go to the city. You'll become infected by LGBTQ, you know, you're porous and you'll, and you'll become infected. But there's a, there's an analog in, on the left, which is yeah. the people who walked out of the play, the people who felt like they would be, somehow that there was toxicity and poison them (laughs) Mm -hmm. that they were porous and that something bad would leak into them and they would Mm -hmm. somehow be compromised um but but you know it's not exactly the same thing but it also but it leads to the same problem Mm -hmm. it leads to the same um unopenness unwillingness to like find human connection and yeah stuff like that i get so i start to roll my eyes at myself when i say things like that but it's true i know i know it's so easy for it to sound cheesy but but it is true and like you know um it's it's you know it it really circles around a question of healing i Mm -hmm. think like how do we Hmm. heal do we want to heal? Yeah. Are we addicted to this pain? Right. Are we, is there, is there a symbiotic relationship happening? Are we villainizing each other because it, it sustains us? Right. Mm-hmm. Or do we actually want to heal? And what would that healing look like? And I think that I'm on the side of healing. And I think that this play is what that healing looks like. Yeah. It's not going to be comfortable, but it's honest. Yeah. And like, it's actually looking at the thing and talking about it on its own terms. Um, without, you know, to the best of my ability, without, um, 
preemptively prescribing some sort of yeah. diagnosis or solution because that's not good therapy right <laughs> you, know? you have to just sit there and talk about it first yeah, yeah. I, but it strikes me that to, to follow the analogy that part of what the healing might involve is like contracting each other's sicknesses to mm-hmm. some degree mm-hmm. like the unwillingness to, to 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 wade into the to the what look like the the depths the muddy waters on the other side mm-hmm. is preventing us some to some degree mm-hmm. we might get sicker before we get yeah healthier yeah and i think you're pointing out something real that's happening with with more progressive people who go to see the plays is that that inversion you know the way that inversion is working on them like the mm-hmm. ways in which they're seeing themselves in this play and there you know there have been people who have been like you know like i'm a Teresa, i'm a kevin i'm a justin yeah you know like I, almost yeah. this like sex in the city way totally. which is like, i love that which is so <laughs> yeah. funny and do a buzzfeed and, quiz yeah yeah totally and there have been like a, a surprising number of you know super stridently progressive people who are like i was so disturbed to find how much i related to Teresa. right you know yep yeah yeah (laughs) one of the uncrossed bridges or the broken bridges between the characters in the play and people like me i think is that the feeling that say like justin would assume or Teresa would assume about someone like me that we love the worldly world Mm. that we love the abundance of pleasures of um immediate pleasures the pornographic quality of our culture that we that we feel that we want to protect it that we that that it, that it is ours that we swim in it and and it doesn't make us sick mm-hmm. um but but my speaking for myself but also i think based on conversations i have with all people all the time it isn't that like the endless availability of netflix binge-worthy shows is sustaining in some fundamental way. It doesn't make us feel whole or human. <laughs> it makes us feel empty in some ways. It's a mm-hmm. panacea. It's something, it's something that, is a, that we we're drawn to because, because we feel something broken or something, uh, um, a whole, an emptiness. Um, we're drawn to it and it, and it, and it, and it you know, sustains us in a, a certain way, like a sugar high. Um, but it doesn't make us feel human and and connected and rooted in the ways that we that we really fundamentally desire i think mm-hmm. and that desire i think is shared right that's mm-hmm. w- what people are talking about what the characters in the play are talking about that what they're seeking and we're both seeking that yeah and in some ways a lot of the things that provides that real sustenance um are the same on both sides yeah you know like that it is it is human connection and love and care and humor and play and um, and particularity, really, in in the sense of like, of of knowing each other, mm-hmm. working out our salvation with, with each other, yeah, um, secular and 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 religious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that that misunderstanding, you know, if I were to make a play like yours about people like me, what I would show a lot of is the sort of conversations that people have on the left about how empty they feel, yeah. about how about how the world that capitalism has created doesn't sustain us. It doesn't make us feel good. It makes us feel bad. <laughs> it makes us feel anxious and sick and and cap and, and you know where 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 your characters would blame, you know, secular kind of individualism, the pursuit of immediate pleasures. You know, I would blame, you know, capitalism. I would blame not just capitalism, but I do think creates its ideal subject. And right now, capitalism's ideal subject is an anxious, unhappy, unfulfilled 
person like myself consumer a consumer mm-hmm. and, and always and, trying to fill a hole always f- trying to fill a hole because yeah. that because that helps that's what produces the economic growth <laughs> that mm-hmm. we apparently need in order for this country and this world to continue but but it's not sustaining us on a human level mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we eventually find out in the play that Teresa almost was kicked out of college mm-hmm. because she had sex and with Justin, right. We find that out even further down the line. But she was forgiven, in a sense, by Gina. Mm-hmm. The, 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 well, she, at the time, Gina wasn't the college president, but she was in a position of enough influence to kind of save their skin. Mm-hmm. And I find the experience of being forgiven in a way, or treated with some kind of grace or mercy, basically treated better than you've earned in that particular moment, to be an extremely powerful experience. And some of the most important things that have happened to me in my own life have been when I've been treated that way, when I've fucked up, when I haven't been at my best, and I've been treated better than I deserved. And what's interesting to me is that that experience did not work itself out in her life, seemingly, in a way that changed her. Mm. Uh, Changed her in the sense of making her realize that there was something fundamental sustaining about that kind of occurrence. And I don't know, that's not a question, but maybe you could speak to that. Because when we're thinking about what does sustain us, what it might look like to forgive or make some kind of human connection across divides, I think it, you know, the Christian language would be mercy, mm-hmm. grace, yeah. forgiveness. Well, I'm actually resistant to looking at you know, so Teresa is the character who m- makes people probably the most uncomfortable, you know, across the board. You certainly experience that from the conservative responses. She's sort of speaking things with a bluntness yeah. and taking them to conclusions that is sort of alarming mm-hmm. and at times like almost too on the nose for comfort. On the left, she's just saying to their ears the most outrageous things and the and, and, line. yeah the more breitbart kind of stuff i think that like something happens where there becomes this collective desire amongst the audience to see her punished in some way mm. and i'm actually sort of resistant to that because um because i think the way in which she's punished and this question around um, you know, her past and looking to it for some sort of answer to why she mm-hmm. is the way she is, is a low blow by Gina. It's, it's so cruel. Yeah. What she says to her is so cruel. Yeah. And, um, you know, the question I was at, I would ask is whether, um, the system that created the circumstances for, this moment of forgiveness <laughs> yeah is actually um the thing that needs examination because who 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 is Gina to give that forgiveness and why does she offer it with with so much less complication to 
to Justin. Yeah, exactly. It was mm-hmm. Teresa's last semester, but Justin, as Kevin says, was an old ass freshman with tattoos and an ex-wife. <laughs> yeah, and and she let you stay, you know, and mm-hmm. and and that I think that I think is is something I'm really interested in is like, and something that I notice. I mean, at least from my experience with with my sisters, is that within the church, um, men sort of receive perpetual forgiveness, mm-hmm. and women receive very little if any yeah. um so the, the 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 burden that is placed on women to be the holy one the um steadfast one the the saintly virgin virginal mm. one is extreme and yeah. um so that's you know when we were talking earlier about what do people not talk about enough i see it on both sides this this need to sort of scapegoat teresa punish her humiliate her mm. and i actually think that's one of the most heartbreaking moments in the play is yeah. when gina does that it's yeah it really is it, it it it's a gut punch you know it's because and it's in that moment where, where it's right after teresa has sort of given her like most kind of defense of like white racial identity and yeah. so you want someone to say no teresa no and gina does but then the, the but the way that she does it is to say this just just disgusting misogynistic thing which is you know the line is you've reverted back to an emotional fire spewing slut i mean it's such a powerful moment because as an audience member you want her to be punished you want her to be put in her place and then it happens and it feels horrible yeah 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 and i think working backwards you know within that is a real um inability on gina's part to intellectually win this debate mm-hmm. about um right conservatism's relationship to whiteness right because white teresa's Western. right well i mean well that's that's our that's my opinion but yeah but but yeah it's relationship to white western civilization and the ways it's all tied tied into that i mean it's this moment of panic and you can you can sort of see the mm. other characters on stage visibly shift when when Teresa says that about white Western civilization and links it to the pro-life movement, I mean, that is sort of the most taboo thing that anyone could say. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and Gina says, you know, she says, I did it for God. And I think, you know, that, that probably is, you know, the only possible, um, defense against that. But on a deeper level, the sort of national inability by white people of both sides to talk Mm -hmm. about, um, to talk about whiteness, yeah, in a ter- in, in ways that it that is actually separated from the political political constituencies, yeah, and, and the aims of people of color, or like the ways that those aims are being like manipulated by socialists or any of right. that, just on a conscience level, yeah, like a, a checking in with your own soul about what it means to be born into this country, yeah, uh, as a white person, um, I think is something that's desperately needed and that conversation between gina and Teresa might have gone a different way if it's something that we were all more used to yeah and it's it strikes me that gina like you're saying she she can't win the argument intellectually and it's one of these moments that are so powerful in the play where where words become daggers Mm -hmm. you know to 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 inflict an emotional pain Mm -hmm. and it sort of belies you know gives lie to the idea that that the essence of what is happening is an intellectual conversation among thinkers who are not, you know, motivated also by 
deep desire, emotional desires, fears. Yeah. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Pain. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, you were going to say something about... Oh, I was going to say that just in the the sort of spirit of these conversations we have about the name, Know Your Enemy, Will, you wrote in the playbill, what do we do with our love for those we fear might be making the world worse? Mm -hmm. Which is a good question. Yeah. Yeah. And as I pointed out multiple times on the show, as a Christian, you should love your enemy. Yeah. So simply denominating someone an enemy is not necessarily a... Yeah. It doesn't determine precisely how you relate to them even. Yeah, totally. And and even when I said um that in the interview, what do we do for our love for someone we think might be making the world worse is like it that also goes both ways. Like, yeah. Um the implication there might be like, what do I, Will Arbery, do for my love yeah. for my family who I think might be making the world worse? But like that's not quite it. It's it's the, the question really is something that clearly the characters in the play are grappling with. Yeah. As well, you know. Um, There's a few times where one of the characters says about, you know, the secularists out there, out there in the world, mm-hmm. that we need to love them. Yeah. That we should try. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite lines is, uh, I guess we are recording, right? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lines is from A River Runs Through It, where, you know, uh, the character played by Brad Pitt dies you know is killed um basically spoiler. over gambling debts and the, and the pardon spoiler yeah spoiler if you haven't seen it um but, but the father is the presbyterian minister and there's a scene toward the end of the movie and it's in the the novella too it's based on where he's preaching and he's clearly talking about his dead son and he says you can love completely without complete understanding mm. and i always thought that was a very profound line yeah that's one of the things i've been talking about lately with regards to this play is like yes this play is i think deeply advocating for love but it's an informed love it's Mm -hmm. it's a love that actually expresses itself by the act of investigation and engagement and you know part of part of what i think is difficult for some people about the ending is that what we're witnessing Emily do, you know, and she's saying all of these, you know, painful sort of things that might seem to be the act of like erasing or, or um, invalidating all of the things she claims to believe is actually what we're witnessing is love. Like that's, that is to me what it feels like at its, at its fullest is is the the movement through that rage and through that desire to erase and then coming back to it and and standing up and being like no you know i i can feel all of this anger and still love you you know mm-hmm. yeah well maybe we should talk about the ending some since yeah. it's been such a 
disputed part of the play. Yeah. And I don't, I, and I don't want to talk about it in a reductive way or ask you to explain the ending. Right. Uh, but maybe one way of asking the question is that it struck me that the play is kind of bookended in an interesting way by the opening scene where Justin kills the deer, shoots the deer, and when he guts it, you know, he's constantly throughout the play, like scrubbing that blood. But that's a very ominous almost, or, or I don't want to say spooky, but it just creates a very interesting mood at the very start. And then at the end, I don't know how much we want to give away, but the, but the episode with, with Emily that has caused people to interpret it in various ways. And I just thought, in structural terms that's an interesting part of the play mm-hmm. is the way it begins and the way it ends. And in between is kind of the conversation and dialogue and, um, you know, the characters talking to each other, but the, again, the way it's framed was very interesting to me. And maybe that would be a, a more general way of getting into the question by just noting that about the play. Maybe you could talk yeah. about that. Yeah. That's definitely something that we were really aware of in the staging of it like how do we bring this ending back to the beginning and and my feeling having just written the the words written the text and imagined the piece was that it did come back to the beginning but the ways in which it did were were sort of inarticulable but that it was there you know and i had some you know mentors who read the play and were more like no it's got to be more it's you know you've got to be able to articulate it. it. It needs to be really clear how it does that, and it and it it needs to be something bigger. You know, like just make mm. it a real play, make it a real play. And Terrifying advice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just make it a real play, unless you you know some someone said unless you're doing something new. <laughs> and um and that was yeah that was sort of terrifying i was like whoa am i doing something new i don't know i mean i'm just i'm doing what feels mm-hmm. right and i feel like the shape is here even without um necessarily knowing how which is sort of what i'm always after is is like the the stuff that goes beyond words and um and and the sacramental i mean i really was looking for how do we what is the shape of the sacrament that is this play? Mm. And, uh, and um, what work is it doing um, upon the, you know, faithful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the people who are brave enough to receive it? Um, and yeah, so, you know, I think in, in like clearer terms, that, that basically means that like the threshold upon which the play begins with this, with this deer that you that we see you know he he shoots it we we fire real blanks so like you really feel that in the theater he goes off into the darkness and emerges with a pretty realistic looking deer you know its head could be a little bit more floppy but that's okay (laughs) um and and gets a knife and goes to gut it if if that is the question that we're bringing into this sacrament or the need that we're bringing into the sacrament, how does it get answered? Hmm. And I think um, my claim is that it is that Emily and Justin in that final scene hmm. answer that need. And however you want to yeah. <laughs> interpret that. Yeah. Um, well, what do you mean by the need? The need yeah. that is introduced by that opening scene with the deer. Yeah. Well, I think by that, I mean, you know, it's an experiential 
um, thing that in, in the moment I think we all share, which is like, okay, that gunshot. Well, first, before any, before the gunshot is what we called the event of silence. Mm. Like we asked the audience to engage with the event of silence. Um, and, and it's true. Like in that opening moment, um, we're just looking dimly, you know, in early morning light at the back of someone, someone's head, you know, he's sitting, he might be praying. We're not totally sure, but very slowly he notices something off in the distance. He, he reaches for something. It turns out to be a rifle. He, he aims long silence there and then he shoots and everyone, um, you know, people, Mm. people gasp, people, you know, you just feel it and it's very loud. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, then he goes and gets it. He comes back. He, he, he goes inside, gets a knife. We're, We're with the deer's body for a moment. He kneels down, goes to gut it. His hands shake. He takes note of that, mm. and then he goes to get it again. And then we flash into the rest of the play, which is which is uninterrupted. It takes place in real time, and that's the only part that mm. doesn't um, take place in that real time. And so I think for for me, like just like experientially, like communally, what the need is is like you know it can it can be said in all sorts of different ways, but it certainly has to do with with um, violence. I mean, mm. it has to do with um, violence and and sacrifice, and the question of whether this gun going off and and this slaying mm. um, uh, was uh, worthwhile, or you know, mm-hmm. was 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 for something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I definitely felt that way. Yeah. I had no idea how to feel. Yeah, and it and it puzzled me. Yeah. Um, I noticed that when Justin is doing his out damn spot routine on the blood multiple times, when, when the other characters are off and when he has a moment alone, he goes and he tries to scrub the blood of the deer away from the deck that he's in a position of supplication in some ways. And he ends up in the same position at the end, mm-hmm. um, with Emily when she's, you know, having this ecstatic fugue kind of experience um yeah for listeners how can we describe the ending without saying too much well one thing one way to get into it is that what what will was alluding to earlier or matt maybe about the ways that it's been interpreted by some people is that there were a lot of people especially religious catholics who have expressed expressed the suspicion that she was experiencing demonic possession and in fact matt when we were leaving the play you also had that instinct right, right? you immediately thought it was that that yeah i would describe it as i didn't think that's what happened but i could not avoid the question right right and and this is you know this happens enough in the play that i don't think this is too much of a giveaway but you hear a noise mm-hmm. a loud noise multiple times during the play that is attributed to a generator not working properly um, but it's such a screeching, disturbing noise that it that it does invoke some kind of dark spiritual force in a way, or it it you know it it just again you almost can't avoid thinking that yeah, um, and it sort of brings the audience back to the sort of like underlying 
uh, nascent violence that like started. Yeah, it's a action. violent noise. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe to get into this a little more, that doesn't, Emily's, the final kind of scene with Emily, it doesn't come that long after mm-hmm. um, Kevin describes a dream he has. Kevin's dream is, again, without giving too much away, it primes the pump, I think, for the final scene in a way. And it makes, he describes this dream where, what, he sees people carrying stones. Well, he sees one being. One being. Um, Yeah, he says, I didn't know if it was a he or she, it was more than one being and one being. Yeah. And and they, this, it, it, it walks past him carrying stones and he starts talking about more sacraments and his feeling is that that what they were carrying were the things they'd been missing mm-hmm. yeah and he doesn't wake the other they're, they're out camping he doesn't wake the other his friends mm-hmm. he wants to but he doesn't he had never told anyone and he now tells this during the play it doesn't happen yeah. during the play but he describes this experience that he had had that he'd never told anyone it's about. kind of the moment of utmost clarity from kevin mm-hmm. yeah yeah He's the calmest he we've seen him be. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't I don't know what you want to say about that, but to me I just I can't generally view the ending without thinking about Kevin's dream too. Like that yeah. that sort of set me up. Maybe this is just me talking about my own experience of the play, but that it again kind of led toward the ending for me or it Yeah. I in my own mind they're linked. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I think um you know, I was listening to another podcast by young Catholic men <laughs> um, who who really went in, you know, they, they preface it by saying that they went into the play um, suspicious because as good Catholics, they were unsure, like, how there could be something about Catholicism that resonated so strongly with progressives. Like something, there must be some sort of Trojan horse element or certain breadcrumbs that had been laid that like a, a basically a code that a lot of other Catholics were missing that made this whole thing. Okay. Um, and one of the things they cited the ending. And then another thing that they cited was um, Kevin's speech and they quoted me from an artist interview where they point out that Kevin has started sort of um, almost unknowingly using the singular pronoun they, and what and then and then what they called a very modernist <laughs> uh, thing, which is that this call for more sacraments, and they point to that as being like a very clear breadcrumb for the progressive audience that like makes the experience of this play okay, um, and I would really. Um. Yeah. Uh, push against that. I. I. What and what? Especially what I push against is um, is the idea that this play can't possibly be for both audiences at the same time, and that the progressive audience would be watching, um, and looking for <laughs> some sort of yeah, some sort of authorial like uh, code that 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 only only this exchange that only we know about that like invalidates their entire you know like 
their entire thing. Um, I just don't think that's what's happening in Kevin's monologue. And I don't yeah. think that's what's happening in Emily's monologue either. Yeah. Um, I think that um, there, there are certainly challenges like stitched into both of those moments, but those, those are challenges that first and foremost should be rooted in character rather than some sort of like sneaky authorial um, intent. Uh, yeah. Well, just as someone who again is Catholic but lives in New York and mostly hangs out with heathens uh, like me. Yeah. Secular Jews like Sam. <laughs> I feel like just to be honest, the breadcrumb of mentioning further sacraments is not going to prick the ears of a lot of progressive New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just don't think that's a, a code for them. Uh, yeah. th- that's not what they're going to respond to. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people, you know, even like <laughs> even gender non-binary people who have seen it who miss the like who miss the use of the pronoun they like it's huh. it's so it's he's doing it so unconsciously that like um and and we're making so little of a big deal of it that like um it is very much not um you know meant to be uh some sort of code mm-hmm. um now, is it interesting on a character level that that is happening to the character who earlier in the play mocked the use of the word they? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's interesting. Um, but, like, is there theological, uh, like, rooting behind um, the idea of more than one being and one being? Yeah, the whole <laughs> the whole <laughs> institution is built upon that. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, maybe diagnostically, what do you think it, how do you interpret the drive to find the demonic in Emily's final, uh, I don't know, outburst speech episode, however you want to describe it? Like, what do you diagnostically, what do, what do you think is going on that so many people wanted to see that there? Um, I think that it has a lot to do with their experience of the play and their experience of the noise and Justin's revelation that, um, you know, he, um, when he first moved into this house, he felt a horrible presence. Mm -hmm. He had a priest come over who scrubbed the place down with holy water, blessed the, blessed the space and it didn't help. And that noise, it's not the generator. He doesn't know what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, Emily's, um, Emily responds to Justin's revelation um, with a secret of her own, which is that earlier in the day, um, earlier in the night, she confessed to him that earlier that morning, mm-hmm. she had woken up and, and couldn't move and, and was um, was basically saying, you know, fuck this to yeah. God, and that she yeah. was mad at God, and that she could feel him just sitting there and just taking it. Um, and this has come after some revelations that like, you know, she sometimes wants to die that she, you know, for her, like faith is really, really, it can be really, really ugly. Um, that, you know, that the level to which she feels the the level to which she feels it, quote unquote, makes her feel violated and taken over sometimes. So, um, there are definitely, you know, there've been, um, things worked in. Uh, she says that actually earlier in the morning, 
it wasn't her. She was actually, she, she felt like she was this woman, Tiffany, a black woman in Chicago who she counseled, um, and ended up getting an abortion anyway. And in their session, um, it got heated. Tiffany yelled at her and called her a self-righteous white girl and all these things. So Emily reveals that. And then Justin tries to comfort her by saying, buddy, she freaks out because earlier in the play, she said, are you my buddy? And he said, looks that way. And he's just revealed that he's leaving. He's going to a monastery. Mm-hmm. These are all huge spoilers, but yeah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> this would be the bonus, yeah. bonus uh, edition yeah. or whatever. Um, and that's when she says the thing that you quoted earlier about, I'm so tired of talking. Yeah. There's nothing to figure out. Um, in heaven, there will be no words and no meaning. It'll just God everywhere through us all the time. And then she launches into a monologue in which she um, seems to be echoing some of the language that she just told us that mm. Tiffany used. Yeah. In their... Uh, it's a new language from Tiffany, it seems. <laughs> it feels like. Yeah. Well, it's... I mean, some of it is similar. Like, you know, you're a little girl. Um, but But a lot of it is specific, like... You know, I came in here thinking you would help me. Mm-hmm. What was, you know, what was I thinking? She's using the, she's, you know, saying fuck a lot. She's yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. but then it morphs into language from the night that we've just yeah. experienced with her and language that could only be particular to Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it morphs into something bigger and it sort of, it, it becomes, you know, she starts saying things like, I'm the trampled on, I'm the damned, I'm the rotting, I'm the right. teeming mass, I'm the, you know, the piss. <laughs> um and ends with her standing up. Um, and Justin has no idea what to do. He, she's hit him. He's fallen onto the, the porch. And he's just like lying there paralyzed and doesn't know how to help. And um, says that he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't know her pain. And she says, it's okay. I love pain. I love it. <laughs> uh, we love pain. We love it. And... Um, so for me to interpret that as the demonic or as some sort of possession is it's one of the few interpretations that I'm willing to come out and say that is that is wrong mm-hmm. you know it's wrong on 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 so many levels even just starting like like with the idea that this priest came over and blessed the space and Justin said it didn't help you know as being a very spiritual person a very a very devout catholic man the implication what he's saying in that moment is that this force this thing that he can't understand this presence Mm -hmm. was not solved by um the traditional methods of confront of you know of confrontation Mm -hmm. that the church offers yeah um he's basically admitting in that moment i don't know what that is if he thought that it was a demonic possession he would have kept going down that road there's not a doubt in my mind he would have pursued that yeah it is something else it is something beyond our own understanding Mm -hmm. and that's the most important thing um it is it is something that none of us understand progressive it's not it's not a breadcrumb for progressive people either it's something neither catholics nor secular progressives or anyone understands it's beyond all of that now is that rooted in the divine it like totally it like (laughs) like that is absolutely um something that you can read into it and i think um 
probably both of the characters on stage read that into it. But um, <laughs> I think that what I'm being confronted with when people have that in- interpretation of the demonic possession is, is um, in my mind, almost like a hubristic um, need to categorize and understand, yes. which I think goes... Um, which you know we're reminded of over and over and over again. If you're if you're if you're a practicing Catholic, that there are mysteries you do not understand. There, that is what faith is: is the stuff that you don't understand and do and and following um, anyway and believing anyway. Mm. Um, so what we're confronted with at the end is the unknowable um, on both of their parts. Mm. Um, and to root Emily's um, following revelation as being demonic possession and that's not even getting into the whole like to my mind emily is just emily in that final moment like whatever is going on with her psychologically the ways that she's absorbed tiffany's pain made it her own you know that 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 level of like literal empathy that we see happening like Mm. someone else's pain becoming your own it's still yeah. her own. It's still yeah. something that has become her own. So she is taking that and making it her own for whatever reason. And you can examine that till, yeah. till yeah. the sun comes up. But like, it's still just Emily. And to say that it's demonic possession is just problematic on so many levels. One writer said that, you know, well, the reason I thought that it was, was because the the word we was used throughout that monologue. And... I pointed out, no, it's not. It's not. It's simply I and you. That's what's happening. The only time she uses we in that monologue is when she says, we just eat each other up and die one by one. And that's before the actual fugue seems to have started. Mm-hmm. The rest of it is I, I, I. Yeah. And like you, you, you. Um, there's, there, is, uh, there is no we there. There's yeah. literally not. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, but she read that into it. Yeah. Um, that's that was the feeling she got. So, I I don't quite know what to make of it, other than like, um, other than to just say no. You know, like that 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 is a misreading. You know what what I'm learning through this debate is that there's a strain of Catholic response to to art um, that is um, potentially. Yeah, just quite frankly, a bit too dogmatic and a bit too didactic. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and looking for the, looking for the moral as you might in a homily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that was my sort of read on the debate. Yeah, was the need to kind of reduce it in a way to something more pat and simple that you can just declare this is what happened. Yeah, um, and fit it into some pre-existing scheme you had of you know, what, what should have happened in that moment. And it's unfortunate, too, because I feel like Christians do that with art all the time. Yeah. And it's so shitty. Yeah. You know, I, I just... And especially when it involves something that that does touch on their own faith and, 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 and grapples with things they're familiar with, their world in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that need to... Uh, Christians do that all the time. Anytime a, a, a writer... So someone like Marilyn Robinson mm-hmm. or... Or my friend Christian Wyman, the the poet, uh, who's a a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a Christian. Um, anytime an bright artist abyss, is that my bright pardon? abyss? He wrote yes, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime a an artist kind of comes out as a Christian or starts dealing explicitly with Christian themes, mm-hmm. you can just feel Christians in the broader kind of intellectual literary universe 
glom onto it. One of us. Say, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in yeah. this case, you know, it's clear you're not like one of them in a certain sense. But we're going to talk about Kanye next, right? But, <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it does touch on that same sort of dynamic where, oh, this is art. It's involving Christianity in an explicit way. Yeah. And I'm going to latch onto it and, and try to hold on to it in, in a very specific sense. Right. It's almost a, a lazy engagement with with the art and 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 what the characters are actually asking of us and what the the form actually is because I think yes it invites the question of the demonic and then it moves past that yes and to to root it there and to dismiss and that's really what's happening is they're sort of they're sort of stating it as objective fact that that's what's happening at the end it's demonic and then they're dismissing it as an incorrect ending to my play <laughs> like yeah or, that is the incorrect ending yes. or and he I, did it oh well whatever let's look at these other endings and find other possible endings inside yeah. of it yeah but i wonder too you mentioned the way the the play textually and and being rooted in emily's character that you know that that should prepare the viewer in a sense for what happens that it's not out of nowhere that it, yeah that it is connected to things she Absolutely. said throughout the play but i think that's actually the point for these people yes emily's the one who's friends with the girl from planned parenthood yes uh so it's it's oh she's a problem well it, but she's but, a- but say but but then you kind of get to dismiss emily's character in a way by right. saying oh the girl who talks about faith and and her her you know spirituality as being a labyrinth so it's complicated and right you know she's the one who's complicating things all the time she's the one again with the friend who works at planned parenthood and then at the end if you find out she's possessed by a demon it means all the complicating factors that emily raised the whole play you get yeah. to just go Whoop. right exactly exactly to dismiss or to 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 banish that sort of um person from your ranks that is the point where i say good luck like good (laughs) good luck surviving because people like this people who have open hearts and a a full and complicated and thorny faith not unlike jesus himself whose faith absolutely exist existed on the fissure between his divine and his human nature Mm -hmm. um like if you and who himself cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, yeah. If you cut if you cut her out of your ranks or if you dismiss her, then 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 you deserve all the bad things people say about you. I'm just like that's <laughs> that's the one thing that will get me that'll get yeah. me really fired up. Because um she's sustaining um some of the most beautiful parts of of the whole thing mm-hmm. in my in my mind. You know yeah. she is um yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's um there's a lot of people on that side of things who really admire the character of Justin because in their view um he he embodies a sort of simple, you know, stripped down and simple faith, you know. And it's hard for me not to read just like a fair amount of latent unacknowledged misogyny in some of this because because Justin is deeply flawed, just like the rest of them, um, and to to find the like, he's also sort of, a patriarchal archetype. <laughs> yeah. Like you said earlier, he's the ideal man, the ideal yeah. Christian man. Yeah, and let, and yet he's fleeing, and and his whole life, you know, he's the nomad. His whole life has been a pattern of of flight and fleeing, um, and getting forgive forgiven for for all of these things that. Um, 
anyway, whatever. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> no, I think it's interesting to talk about the, the character of Justin. We've talked about him least. Yeah. It is it is very interesting, you know, symptomatically that that a certain kind of conservative Catholic is drawn to his character. He, like we said earlier, is the character who represents the the idea of the Benedict option of of sort of um, going and um, escaping to a place um, where we could live our small, grateful, particular lives um, with in, in in community with each other. Um, Which is there's a absolute beauty there so much so much so and it's like a thing that on the left we talk about too which is which is the people who are like you know let's just go form the commune like we're we we should we should live our lives according to the principles that we want to uh and prefigure the world that we want um as opposed to trying to take power in this ugly in this ugly system and impose it upon everyone else it's the same it's really the same debate on the left and the right about that between sort of in some sort of put it most simply on the left, it's anarchists and socialists. The other thing I wanted to say about Justin is that um, in a moment that, that made me laugh um, is he he's the one who goes and gets his guitar and plays a Towns Van Zandt song. Yeah. Um, you know, they're like, what song is it? He's like, well, outsider country, Towns. <laughs> goes and gets the guitar. And I think I said this off the mic, so I'm going to say it again, which is that um, as soon as that happened, I like reached over and, and poked Matt and... Um, <laughs> And and then immediately tried to guess what song it was, and I thought it was going to be Two Girls, um, which is the song that goes, uh, I got two girls, one in heaven and one below, one I love with all my heart and one I do not know, <laughs> which would have been so perfect stupider than what yeah. <laughs> stupider than what you than what you chose, which is the song Nothing, which is an amazing song. Um, he doesn't get through singing the song because the quote the non generator generator noise goes off and. You know, maybe the, for the first time. It's the first time, yeah. Um, and uh, stops him. But the last line of that um, song, which is, again, an amazing song, the last uh, stanza, which I think in some ways can kind of like in, um, encapsulate Justin's uh, approach to faith and to finding solace is is... Sorrow and solitude, these are the precious things and the only words that are worth remembering. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, it has this sort of stoicism and like, and sort of resignation and comfort in living in, living with one's sorrow. And it may be like, and, and, and in some ways, leaning into one's sorrow in a in a selfish way in a way that like that cuts yourself cuts you away from not just the world in the in the sort of commune benedict option way but away from people Mm. away from other people that you might love or that might love you um because the, the song is about is somebody leaving um someone who he loves and saying um over and over again um I don't want nothing. I can't use nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you leave, don't leave me nothing. I don't want nothing. Yeah. Um, for me, like, it it reminds me of the way that becoming too in love with one's own sadness and with one, one's own um, f- 
feel self-loathing um isolation can in one's own isolation can be an an unkindness Mm -hmm. um to the people around you because i think what justin does um is unkind like i i think that that emily asks him for to be her buddy and and ultimately he's he refuses Mm -hmm. yeah i think that you know another thing that's laced into that song is um the sort of you 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 feel in the in the language especially around the word use and using is the, the 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 specter of addiction yes and uh which we know towns van zandt struggled with but also you know not not even just the addiction to um substances but to other people and uh um the ways in which justin seems to be someone who's like plagued by the ways in which he uses and abuses other people and um doesn't trust himself to you know i'm always (laughs) anytime we start talking about a character i'm always gonna end up like <laughs> uh being their advocate <laughs> yeah i think yeah. that that's what's so wonderful about the play too is that you yeah. can get to that place with yeah. every character yeah because there's something gentle about him too oh yeah you know that's partly what makes him such an interesting character yeah oh yeah i just think that he um he doesn't trust himself yeah. with specifically with women. Yeah. And there's some wound there that's hinted at and some, you know, you know, um, you know, maybe he thinks there's some sort of beast inside of him that, mm-hmm. that yeah, becomes, becomes addicted. And, and, and so he, he has to, uh, he has to cut himself mm-hmm. off, but in so doing the people, um, the people that he's cutting himself off from become less than people, mm. you know, or maybe, you know, maybe it's their peopleness and their humanness. their so, so humanness. Yeah. That, that is the addiction, but like to, yeah, you know, it, it there's just a tragic, there's a tragic contradiction there. It, right. Yeah, right. And it know? is a sort of thing where I know that experience and I've seen it and I felt it where someone says, Oh, you know, I'm not good for you. Like, yeah. I, I need to, I need to get away from you because, because I'm only going to cause more suffering. Yeah. And I have been in that situation. I've been on the other side of it, and there's a there's an instinct in the person who's being left to be like, that's not is that your decision to make for mm. me? Right. Right. For me, that I'm not allowed to suffer with you. Right. Yeah. And of course, he does. He doesn't quite say that, but that's totally in the air with with the way that he delivers it to her yeah where did these characters come from i don't mean like who is this character based off of right but i mean writing a play i mean despite being a writer and editor i've never written a play Mm -hmm. and i I do think the the form of theater is really interesting so i'm assuming a certain amount of balance for lack of a better word you know wanting different characters that get at different things went into it but you know, you've mentioned that so certain things are hinted at, perhaps with a guy like Justin's background, right? There's a, a backstory to all these characters that we don't totally get in the play. Um, you know, we learn certain things about Teresa and Justin and their past relationship. Um, you know, we, we get 
glimpses of their life in college together, but we don't get their full backstories. We don't know much about their parents, say, or their socioeconomic background in all cases. Um, but maybe you could talk about that a little bit, where these characters came from. Maybe you could say if certain characters are based on certain people. Um, again, not, not to talk about that in a reductive way, but just you know, why these characters? Mm-hmm. Why that many characters? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so much of this was just instinct and uh, just trying to capture the feeling of of those backyard conversations. And what I'm what I'm drawn to inherently as a playwright is is people with contradictions and um, busting up stereotypes. You know, so in order to do that, I sort of had to think back on the people I knew and the people I had encountered either in my own family or friends or, you know, who, who felt like we're engaging at least to some degree with a level of archetype, you know, Mm -hmm. an archetype is important to this play. Um, It's important to the way that people perceive it and go into it. And then to complicate that archetype is, is very much what's happening right Mm -hmm. from the get go. But further and further as we go along, it gets more and more complicated, more and more contradictions. Um, that's what I'm drawn to. So, like, yeah, like, Emily is based on my younger sister. Gina is based on my mom, totally. But, like, with the other ones, like, the sort of the students, the acolytes, like, that those were, those are, you know, they had this feeling of, like, amalgamation from different people I've yeah. encountered. And, uh, um, but, you know, one person who's really inspiring to me is, like, you know, one of my my best friend from from childhood we went through boys school together you know we're still close is a very very catholic man deeply conservative um aggressively (laughs) (laughs) and he's also gay and you know came out to me our junior year of high school literally in front of a enormous illuminated uh statue of jesus (laughs) by a lake in West Texas or East Texas. And, um, you know, I, I, there are elements of him. I sort of split him in two into Kevin and Teresa. And there are other people inside of those two characters as well. But like that, that contradiction within my friend, the intensity of his deep spiritual longing combined with, um, an almost like, a chilling view of, of the future of like white Western civilization mm. and what needs to be done to, to preserve it. Um, like, and, and also just like a very, a very funny person, someone who wants love, um, someone who, uh, <laughs> who loves like, you know, that, like what you called Auden's like chemical life. Like he, <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> um, but also thinks like, deeply deeply into the meaning of the eucharist and how to better better receive the eucharist and Mm -hmm. and like just for me that's my that's that's my favorite kind of person and with his permission and he loves this play Mm -hmm. uh he actually like went through and made sure certain things were accurate and would show it to some of his friends and be like is that accurate and like we would (laughs) like he was an amazing resource for me i disagree with him on so so many things but like but hopefully you know the act of like engaging with him and sort of like 
using him for my art um, doesn't come between us because I think, at least in the way I'm trying to do it, there is a, there is a, it's not even, it's not even patience because it's not like I feel like I'm someone who is sitting somewhere with all the answers and with all the, you know, the, the things and, uh, you know, uh, like I, it's, it's just, it's just an, an engagement with, um, with him and, and all of his beautiful contradictions. So, uh, the characters came from, <laughs> from people like that, just like people who, um, I thought were, were beautifully complex. Hmm. Yeah. 